Syrian medical personnel and the Syrian healthcare system have been devastated by the ongoing war in that country. Since 2011, Physicians for Human Rights has documented the killings of 679 medical personnel, 95% of them perpetrated by government forces. Investigators from the organization recently interviewed physicians still practicing in the city of Aleppo. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Heisler, a professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School and a board member at Physicians for Human Rights. Dr. Heisler has co-authored a perspective article about attacks on physicians and healthcare facilities in Syria. Dr. Heisler, do you think the Syrian government is actively targeting doctors and hospitals in its attacks? And if so, why? That's a wonderful question. And we initially, when Physicians for Human Rights first started documenting bombing and the attacks on hospitals throughout the country of Syria since the conflict began in 2011, when we started doing this research, we expected that most would be evidence of what's called collateral damage that indeed they would be caught in bombings, they wouldn't be the actual target. But as Physicians for Human Rights started sifting through all the evidence, it became clear that these strikes were not a result of collateral damage. First, most of the major hospitals stand alone. That's certainly the case in Aleppo. Before the conflict in Aleppo started, there were 33 hospitals, large hospitals. Now there are only 10 still functioning. But all of these hospitals stand alone and are not near any buildings that could be a legitimate military target. Second, at the beginning of the conflict, the hospitals were clearly, although that has now changed as the Red Crescent now, sadly, is more like a target than a shield. Third, we were able to get satellite imagery of just before each attack and just after the attacks. And this allowed us to rule out that there may have been a legitimate military target in the vicinity at the time, such as a column of armed vehicles, and again, to make sure that the hospital was functioning, and at least early on in the conflict marked. And finally, there are some cases when the government of Assad announced that they targeted a doctor who then subsequently was killed in a strike on a hospital. And there's also circumstantial evidence. And some of this is the fact that so many of the hospitals have been hit more than once. In the city of Aleppo, the 10 remaining hospitals have all been hit at least once. And one of the hospitals has been hit seven times. Finally, the government's practice of detaining, torturing, and in some cases killing doctors because they provided treatment to protesters and now to wounded combatants also indicates that the government has adopted a policy that violates the principle of medical neutrality. The only other point I want to make, and sorry this is such a lengthy answer, but one thing that's important when you think about the Geneva Convention's international law that governs war and conflict Even in cases of collateral damage, and this came up in the recent airstrike by the U.S. Air Force against the hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, which many do believe may have been accidental, but they're investigating that. But as you know, civilians and civilian objects, such as hospitals and clinics, really can never be targeted. This is called the principle of distinction. But even when targeting a legitimate military object, the military or armed group must assess the risk of damage to civilians and only pursue the attack if the military advantage of taking out the target is proportional to the risk of civilian casualties. This is called the principle of proportionality. And when they do decide they have to do that, 
the offensive party must give warnings to civilians to clear the area to further reduce the risk of civilian casualties, what is called the requirement of taking precautionary measures. So we don't have a single report of all the hospitals and medical facilities that have been packed. We don't have a single report of any precautionary measures being taken. You mentioned that Aleppo now has just 10 functioning hospitals, and you say in your article that the largest of those currently has only 13 physicians. So when you interviewed the physicians, besides fearing for their own safety, what did they say were the biggest challenges involved in operating a healthcare system in these circumstances? One of the things I think we all were struck by is the remarkable courage and resilience of all the health professionals that we spoke with. Right now, they are receiving medicines and support from a range of non-governmental and governmental organizations, the International Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders. So they do have basic medicine and equipment, but certainly shortages of equipment, medicine and necessities, difficulties finding clean water and electricity have been very difficult in terms of performing their functions. They have really no CAT scans or MRIs that are functioning now in the whole city of eastern Aleppo, meaning it's very difficult to do surgery or act quickly in cases of traumatic brain injuries. I think one of the problems, too, is they have kind of the group of surgeons, the group of physicians, but many of them, although they do have a core of physicians, really many of them are having to practice outside their scope of practice general surgeons trying to do thoracic surgery. They currently do have three functioning dialysis units in eastern Aleppo, but no kidney doctors, no nephrologists. So all of the dialysis units are being staffed by technicians, really being very ingenious in terms of figuring out ways to get the machines to work with limited supplies. So lots of task shifting. As one doctor said, he said, we do a remarkable job saving lives. But often, for example, we're able to amputate a leg, but you have that feeling as a physician of sadness, knowing that if there were vascular surgeons, that leg could have been saved. And certainly then recognizing that there's no rehabilitation services, so they're able to save lives, but not offer rehabilitation. And certainly there are absolutely no mental health services now available at all in the city of eastern Aleppo. Has the current migration crisis had an impact on this situation? I think, as we note in the full report and in the perspective piece, about 95% of all the physicians that before practice in Aleppo have fled the country or left. So certainly many of the health professionals, the physicians themselves, have fled. A number of the physicians we spoke to said that all of their family is in Germany. Actually, one doctor had gone to Germany and was continuing his residency training in Germany. And finally, he said, I'm Syrian. I'm a physician. I have to go back. As long as there are still fellow citizens in Aleppo, I have to go back. And he left his family in Germany. He left his opportunity to continue getting specialized pediatric surgery training. And actually, he was the case that we first mentioned at the beginning of the perspective that his family, we started off with his story that he felt just, I'm Syrian. I'm a physician. I just can't live with myself if I'm not there providing health care. So certainly the migration crisis has also meant that many, many physicians have left. We basically heard that there are almost no women physicians still in eastern Aleppo. People talked about a legendary OB-GYN. Several physicians did mention one woman OB-GYN. 
who actually had not even left the city once in the past three years. And as they said, she feels that if she leaves, a woman will die in childbirth. So there was one woman that a number of people mentioned who, unlike most of the physicians, often many of the physicians will spend 15 to 20 days in southern Turkey. Many of the physicians have their families in southern Turkey, and then the physicians go back and pretty much work around the clock for 15 or 20 days, living in the hospitals, working, and then they go to southern Turkey to rest and try to pull themselves together. And the city itself, I think there's maybe 300, 400,000 people left in the city from a population of about 1.2 million before the conflict began in Aleppo in 2012. You spoke earlier about the Geneva Conventions, and you write in the article that the scope and scale of the government's assault on medical personnel in Syria are among the worst since the adoption of the Geneva Conventions. Under those treaties, what's the international community's responsibility in this sort of situation? Well, as we note in the report, it's really the responsibility of the UN Security Council to take action, if necessary, to refer cases of war crimes to the International Criminal Court. And so what we're really calling for is the UN Security Council to fulfill its obligations. And there have been, in fact, two UN Security Council resolutions, Resolution 2139 and 2,165. So certainly one of our main requests is indeed that those resolutions be implemented. These resolutions demand an end to unlawful attacks on civilians, immediate and unhindered delivery of humanitarian assistance to those in need throughout Syria, and respect for medical neutrality that they enforce respect that health care must be protected and must be provided impartially. We've seen that kind of international mobilization in 2013 when Syria was launching chemical warfare against its own civilian population. As you may recall, there was an outcry, and the Syrian government in that case did back down. And so I think that that's one of our main requests that the UN Security Council take actions Certainly individual governments, I think the U.S. government actually hasn't specifically called for an end to these attacks on health professionals and health care. So we're hoping that the individual governments will take action and really make this part of the negotiation process. Finally, after the November terrorist attacks in Paris, there were some changes, at least in the military action of foreign governments in Syria. Do you see that as making a change in other action, in negotiations? Well, I do think the attacks on Paris have really mobilized. Certainly France is saying we have to have an end to this terror, certainly. So I do think that a lot of individual countries that have the capacity to put a lot of pressure on the Syrian government, I think Russia and Iran, of course, have been very strong supporters of the Syrian government. But I think everyone, given just the horrific threat and terror now being unleashed by ISIS, I think increasingly individual countries realize that there has to be a negotiated settlement, that more pressure has to be put on the Syrian government so that really everyone can mobilize and reach a negotiated settlement. I think people feel that until a negotiated settlement, some kind of transition between the non-ISIS opposition and the government will be an essential step in reducing the threat of ISIS. 
first of all, I'm a doctor, so that the political analysis, I don't know, but <laughs> but again, our focus really was on the situation of healthcare and medical infrastructure. But I think we're certainly hearing of the individual countries and governments, I think, stepping up and really making this a high priority. Thank you, Dr. Heisler.